Good morning, everyone. Can everyone hear me all right on this? Good morning, and thank you for coming to our session, this early morning session, if you will. Um, our session, Beyond Counting Visitors, Four Examples of Evaluation in History Museums. My name is Cheryl Kessler, and I'm the chair of this session, as well as the principal of Blue Scarf Consulting. I am also the chair of the Visitor Studies Association Professional Development Committee and a board member. This panel um, is part of an ongoing effort to share the work of Visitor Studies Association members um, as both a way to um, increase, excuse me, awareness of visitor studies and VSA itself. So for those of you not familiar with VSA, it was founded in 1990, and today VSA has evolved into a dynamic professional organization focused on meeting the growing demand for tools and inspiration to better understand visitors, as well as best practice strategies for how to attract, educate, and serve them. This is a, uh, there's a small um, and we hope growing segment of VSA that conducts or works with history-based institutions to learn about visitor perspective and experiences in order to design, build, or restructured visitor-centered experiences. The intention of this session is to help you be informed evaluation consumers. You may never conduct an evaluation um, study yourself, but you may need to use evaluation findings or hire an evaluator. So for that purpose, I'd like to share a couple of definitions with you before we hear um, the presentations. So here's a standard definition um, from Michael Quinn Patton, who has written extensively on evaluation for the past 30 or 40 years. Um, what makes evaluation a valid exercise is the systematic collection of information. Um, it needs to be useful, and it needs to be um, used for making decisions to increase understanding of what's going on in your program or exhibit. Have any of you seen this definition before? Oh, good. See, you've learned something new already. Okay. Um, we're often asked um, that, <clears throat> excuse me, what the, the difference is between research and evaluation. And it kind of comes down to this. Evaluation is a snapshot of what's going on. Research is generalizable across time, space, population. You can do a bunch of little snapshots and look at them across and you can have a little research, but the main difference is that one is a snapshot, one is generalizable. We have a handout up here. Um, at the end of the session, you can come and pick it up. Back in, I think, 2007, um, the Institute for Learning and Innovation put together um, one of ASLH's technical um, handouts. And I copied that and I have it here. And it's really very helpful. Um, I believe the title of it is Thinking Evaluatively. So again, it doesn't teach you exactly how to do evaluation, doesn't assume that you're going to do evaluation, but it gives you a lot of information about evaluation. Um, now to share some of those examples of evaluation. Um, we are going to hear from our panelists. So. Um, First up will be um, Christy Smeltzer, Manager of Visitor Evaluation and Correspondence at the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then following Christy will be uh, Mary Jane Taylor, the Research and Evaluation Manager at the National Constitution Center. Then Sarah Cohn from Cohn Consulting will be up. And finally, Karen Oberg from Oberg Research. Now, even though we all come from different places, we're all involved with Visitor Studies Association. Um, 
Christy was our April Award winner two years ago. Mary Jane has been an active member and presenter. Sarah Cohn is our association manager. And Karen has been on numerous task force committees and a board member. So we're all here um, representing ourselves with the work that we do, as well as VSA. Ready? Okay. I forgot to put my little slides up. Here we go. These are the projects we'll be talking about. <laughs> Ever so well coordinated when I put this together. Okay. There you go. Thank you. I'm just really excited to be here today with colleagues from the Visitor Studies Association and talking with you, our friends in AASLH. Um, I work at Monticello, which is owned and operated by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, so it's exciting for me to have this great opportunity to interact with so many other members of the historic community. Um, so thanks to Cheryl for putting this together in the introduction. Uh, just a little bit of context about my position. Um, I've only been in this position since January 2011. Um, looking at visitor studies and program evaluation in a formal way is something that we've only really, really um, recently, excuse me, been doing at Monticello. We've done some pre uh, previous um, previous small pieces of research, um, and much of that was from more of a marketing uh, viewpoint. So my position is exciting for me personally because I'm, I'm growing into it. And it's also exciting for the organization because we're more formally and consistently looking for feedback from our visitors and using it to help us make decisions, ensure that we're on the right track, and um, also be able to share about our successes in a, in a meaningful way. Um, so I've been very fortunate at Monticello to have the support of some great leadership. Um, I report to Gary Sandling, who's the um, Vice President for Visitor Programs and Services. He's been very supportive of my professional development. Also, our President, Leslie Green Bowman, has been really supportive, which is, uh, make, makes my job a lot easier, especially as I'm, I'm learning as I go. So the first thing that we needed to do with the evaluation that I'm going to talk about, which is a qualitative evaluation of the house tour experience at Monticello, <clears throat> Excuse me. The first thing that we needed to do was talk about what engagement means at Monticello. It's a bit of a, a buzzword right now in the museum community, and it's something that I think you have to narrow the scope of. We definitely needed to narrow the scope of before we began trying to evaluate it. So the gist of the um, <clears throat> definition that we came to, I worked with Linnea Grimm, who's the Hunter J. Smith Director for um, Education and Visitor Programs, and also our House Tour Operations Manager, Bob Hughes. And together, we sort of put our, our heads together and decided that we wanted um, visitor engagement at Monticello, bless you, during house <laughs> tours, to... Um, be an immersive experience for our, guy, our for our visitors, that they would be really very interested and connected to the experience during their house tour, that they would be making personal connections with things that they were experiencing, and two, that it would um, provide them with a lingering impact, that they would afterwards do something based on that experience, whether it be talk about the visit with their family, um, share information via social media or word of mouth with colleagues, friends, uh, maybe um, connect with Monticello via our online community, or even more so, um, don't volunteer with us, donate if there's somebody who lives in our neighborhood. So that's what we were thinking about in terms of engagement. So this slide I love. Uh, for me, I use this when I'm working uh, with guides and training, and the gist is we want our visitors to be jumping with joy. 
Hopefully they're learning while they're jumping with joy. But um, part of the reason I love this photo um, is that it shows a, a number of visitors jumping on the west lawn of Monticello in unison. And I took it from our Flickr page. So these visitors staged this themselves. It took them four tries. They were using one fella's camera, somebody else's tripod, and they had somebody who was designated to be in charge of yelling jump so that they could all be in unison. And then they posted it in their story on Flickr. And so I think that that's a a real example of that sort of lingering engagement experience that we're looking for. So as with any um, evaluation, the first things that we needed to figure out after we defined engagement were uh, what we wanted to know, uh, who knew it, why we wanted to know it, and then what we were going to do with it. So um, you need that with any evaluation. We put our heads together to figure it out for this evaluation. So what we wanted to know, we wanted to figure out um, are our visitors engaged and, and how are they engaged, what's engaging them. We also wanted to assess things that might be keeping them from being engaged during their house tour experience. And finally, we were looking to um, perhaps come up with some concrete behaviors that indicate our visitors are engaged. That would be a useful tool for our guides to add to their toolkit to be able to acknowledge and understand when visitors are engaged. So that's what we wanted to know. Why do we want to know it? Well, 98% of our visitors do the house tour at Monticello. We're really a historic house museum. We have other things to offer, but sort of the... excuse me, the flagship of the experience is the house tour. It's what everybody comes expecting. Other things that we have to offer are just an added benefit, but the house tour makes or breaks their experience. So that's why we wanted to know a little bit more about it. Um, Then we needed to figure out who knew it. We have lots of really great staff members who part of their every day is that they informally gauge our visitors' engagement or providing tours. But we hadn't looked at it in a formal way to get our visitors' perspective about what's engaging them and their subjective point of view about what was working during our house tour experience. So we had to go to the visitors themselves. And finally, what actions do we hope to take with it? We're looking to revise our interpretive standards. That will help both with um, guide uh, recruitment and training. Um, also, evaluation of tours going forward. Uh, we're hoping to provide some narratives of successfully engaging tours that will be helpful for our veteran guides and new guides alike. And finally, we wanted to gain a baseline understanding of what engagement looks like right now on our tours. So in the future, if we make changes, we'll be able to measure how those are working against that baseline. So right now, the intimidating slide that is a bubble from my mind is up. Please do not strain your eyes, nor um, brains trying to read it. The reason this is up, really, is just to illustrate that engagement, um, when I began to unpack it and incorporate feedback from guides, was something that had a lot of moving parts. Uh, And so this was a way for me to pull out what some of those ideas might be and categorize them in a meaningful way. So the most important reason this is up is to illustrate we couldn't get at all this with an evaluation. It just wouldn't work. It wouldn't be effective. And even when we narrowed the scope of what we wanted to look at, we, um, we knew that we were going to need to um, parse it out into different parts of the evaluation so that we'd be able to get at different pieces of information in different ways. We're going to have to use mixed methods. So um, 
the, the things that we decided to break it down into is three stages. One, which is what I'm going to talk about in just a minute, a first stage, which was a more um, quantitative questionnaire with visitors to get at logistical aspects, concrete aspects of the house tour experience and how that affected their ability to engage. The second stage, which is what's coming up next, is going to be a series of observations of visitors on tours with interviews afterwards to really get inside their perspective of what's engaging them. And there are some things from this first portion that we will talk about in interviews, and there are some things we won't talk about. And then the final stage is a follow-up um, with our, our visitors, likely an online survey, to get their perspective about those lingering impressions. Are those things there? Um, so for that first stage, the red stars that just appeared, and I will read it, don't strain, um, but we wanted to look at aspects of uh, things that I categorized under environment, personal comfort, and concrete or logistical visitor expectations. Those were some things we wanted to focus on in that next stage or the first stage of the evaluation. And so here's a little bit more legible version of um, those sort of categories and you can see even here that um, further parsing took place. We didn't ask about everything that fell underneath those subtopics even. So here, excuse me, we've got physical, which involves things like questions about temperature and lighting, um, environment, talking about furniture and group size, um, and also interest, the logistical or concrete interest and expectations, how long the tour might be, how many um, or how much of the house they might see. So this slide, um, I got a little bit crazy with uh, Illustrator. But for me, what this illustrates, um, it's, a, it's a picture of the Monticello Entrance Hall, which is the first room inside the house that our visitors see. And in that room, um, uh, we've got the guide there uh, on from your direction. It's the left. And the guide is thinking they're going to love, if you can't tell what that is, it's Jefferson's Great Clock installed in the house between 1804 and 1805, and it's never left. So it's definitely a showpiece item that our guides are going to want to talk about in that room. But this illustrates that we've got visitors coming in with different expectations. We've got the youngster there, the, the, the shorter stick figure, who's got T-Rex on the mind as he heads towards a case that has fossilized bones in it. We've got, uh, I imagine him as a gentleman right next to the door who's envisioning himself in one of our lovely Windsor chairs. Maybe he's just done an outdoor walking tour and his feet are a bit sore. And then we've got somebody in the foreground there who's thinking about books. You've heard Jefferson cannot live without books. Well, this is the one of the few rooms in the house where we don't have any books on display. So I think that this slide just illustrates sort of the automatic um, uh, rift in our visitors' interests with something like a historic house museum, where they're they're drawn to look at the objects that are engaging to them, and they're also trying to be attentive listeners to the guide who may or may not be talking about those things. Um, so when we did that that questionnaire, the um, the most interesting thing that we found out from that first stage of the evaluation, um, oftentimes in our visitor correspondence and um, survey comments, we hear from people that the house tour felt too rushed or too crowded. And so we asked several questions to get at the idea of time and also to kind of unpack, okay, well, if they said it felt rushed, what made it feel rushed? So we learned um, that too rushed really isn't about time, which maybe it sounds silly now, but for me it was like, huh, because I know that our guides definitely, when they have the opportunity in winter when we have fewer guests, they will they will extend their tours and talk longer with people, thinking they're going to conquer that too-rushed issue. But maybe it's not about time. We found that it was more about um, our visitors not having access to the objects or things that were of most interest to them. 
So how did we come to this conclusion? We had uh, a statement that we asked visitors to agree with. And they said um, if they agreed that my house tour felt rushed, we had a number of options they could choose from. And um, it included um, the rate with which the guide spoke, their ability or the ability of someone in their group to ask questions, um, the abil- ability excuse me, to see um, the objects in the room they were interested in, and um, also other groups coming in behind their own. And the surprise there was that the most common answers, 80% of people told us that they didn't have enough time to look at the objects of interest to them, and 70% told us that groups coming in behind their own. And I was really fortunate to have, I'm usually a department of one, but I had the help of an intern while doing this um, named Kate Johnson. And Kate and I, we, we concluded, we theorized that um, the, the issue with groups coming in behind them is sometimes when we're doing tours, we'll have people trying to linger at the back to get at those items that they didn't get to see. And if the other group is coming in, that impedes their ability to do so. So that was the, the conclusion we come from, uh, come, came to, and it's going to inform what we do in stage two. So that's all I have today. If you have any um, questions, feel free to ask at the end or talk with me afterwards. And now Mary Jane's coming on up. Thank you. My name is Mary Jane Taylor, and I'm the Research and Evaluation Manager at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. The uh, project I'd like to share with you today is an evaluation we conducted last year of our main exhibit. We have a 21,000 square foot uh, kind of core exhibition that, uh, just as Christy talked about the house tour, really forms the bulk of our visitor experience. This uh, Exhibit was installed when our building opened in 2003, and except for a few minor tweaks here and there, has remained largely unchanged ever since. We knew from simply our floor staff and from our own experience of being on the floor that there were some real challenges with our visitor experience, particularly because uh, the graphic at the bottom illustrates that our exhibition is in the shape of a, of a circle, the donut we sometimes refer to it as. And that's not a very non-traditional way to install a history gallery, and we knew that wayfinding and chronology was sometimes a real challenge. So how did we begin to um, look at this question of how well this exhibit worked for our visitors? I worked with a staff team to identify core questions that we wanted to answer. One was, is the, is the exhibition convey, conveying the learning objectives that had been set for this experience, including the desired uh, affective or em- emotional outcomes that we hoped people would have, and the visitor experience goals that we had. We wanted people to have a social experience and to leave feeling very engaged with the U.S. Constitution and feeling that they had learned something about being a citizen. Second, we wanted to know how do visitors use the space and how do they actually engage with the content that we present. Third, is the exhibition appealing to different generations of visitors, including adults, families, and school students? And this was really a critical factor for us because school kids form almost 50% of our audience, which was far, far higher than the museum 
anticipated when we opened nearly 10 years ago. And finally, as we looked ahead toward our 10th anniversary in 2013, we wanted to know what should change about the exhibit in a potential redesign. So I designed a visitor study that would help to address these various issues. And the first step, uh, which was a really critical one, was beginning by conducting focus groups with staff and volunteers at the museum at all levels. Everyone from our operations staff to our vice presidents participated in this process of figuring out what our staff had learned by simply living with this exhibition and taking visitors through for about eight years. Once those focus groups had concluded, we used that data to help form the questions that would be addressed in a visitor intercept. This was an interview that was conducted with visitors very near the conclusion of their um, experience in the main gallery. We also wanted to know a little more objectively how visitors were using the space. And um, I knew from experience that while it's great to ask people what they think, they're often not very good at reflecting on what they have truly done. Not because they're lying, just because they become absorbed and can't really be very accurate in their assessments of how much time they spent. So to obtain that more objective measure, we conducted a timing and tracking observation. And then to really focus in on the parts of the exhibit that were and were not working, we identified six areas where we wanted to do assessment of individual exhibition elements. Our initial thought was, oh my goodness, we have a 21,000 square foot gallery. And my director of exhibitions looked at me with a panic-stricken expression saying, how will we ever choose just six things to look at? Because that was what we had time and money to do. In the end, it was a relatively simple process. We concluded that there were certain things, and we had validated this in our focus group research, that worked so well, we knew visitors loved them. And we really didn't need to evaluate those because those were sort of our core experiences that were going to stay the same. We also had a sense of the things that were utter disasters and that nobody liked. And we decided, you know what, we're tearing those out. It doesn't really matter what the research says. We know that they're just toast. So we then began to really zero in on what are those things that visitors kind of like, they they attend to, but they don't really seem to be getting the point of. And those became the basis of what we refer to as our focused observation, where we both observed visitors and then interviewed them afterwards to get a little bit more in-depth information. The... Uh, process uh, took just under a year, um, in part because I'm the sole evaluator at the Constitution Center, although I have a small team of uh, part-time data collectors who assisted with actually um, interacting with our visitors. And the study I knew was too large for me to undertake solely on my own, so we contracted with the Institute for Learning Innovation, uh, particularly for the timing and tracking and the focused observations, because they was, those were going to be so much more labor-intensive. 
we had a staff team who was uh, looking at this process of how the exhibition worked that included our director of exhibits and director of visitor experience. Um, we also had a space planning consultant who the staff and who the senior team and the board had engaged to look at how our building as a whole functioned. And we had a board committee who was really looking ahead toward what kind of fundraising would be needed to achieve some sort of redesign in the future. All of those people had a stake in this process, and they all kept asking for information. And so it really was not an option for me to simply say, as evaluators are wont to do, you know, we won't know anything until we've got everything in hand. Instead, what we negotiated was a reporting process where at each stage of the evaluation, once the focus groups had been concluded, once we had gone through our busy spring season before we moved into our summer tourist extravaganza around the 4th of July, um, and then um, at the end of the summer, and then um, finally um, later in the fall when we had had a chance to conduct some teacher focus groups. So what did we find out from all of these, uh, all of these different evaluation processes? We learned a couple of really interesting and sometimes contradictory things. When we asked visitors what they like best, as you can see from the word cloud on the screen, they were loud and clear. They loved the fact that we were interactive. That was an easy question to answer. We also found, however, that when we asked them what most needed improvement, interestingly, they said interactivity. <laughs> so what do you do with that? Well, I really began to look closely at the individual comments that visitors made and discovered that what they meant by interactivity was the fact that while they liked the amount of multimedia and new technology that the exhibition incorporates, they were really hungry for some good old-fashioned hands-on. And they were really looking for a better mixture of ways that they could engage with the content. And that was particularly true for the visitors who had children with them. We also discovered in our interviews that there were some changes to content, or maybe tweaks to content, that our audience was eager to see. Interestingly, they divided into two very clear camps. They were looking for more information about the history of the Constitution and information around the Revolutionary War. Another camp was adamant that they really wanted to find out more about current issues that revolved around the Constitution. They wanted context for political debates about immigration and health care and other things where the news media cited the Constitution. We also found out that there were some changes that were needed to the installation to make our visitors more comfortable. The gallery environment in that circle was not ideal. Sound levels are a particular issue, and when we asked people to rate how they felt about the sound, they gave it sort of lackluster reviews. And um, unsolicited, people also asked, can you please lower the noise level in here? We learned a lot from the timing and tracking about how people use our space. In 21,000 square feet, we discovered they were spending 21 minutes. A minute per 1,000 square feet, not so good. And we also found that there were no differences between general visitors and our school students. 
So right now we're taking all of this data and looking ahead toward how we will be able to adjust uh, individual components um, and hopefully someday a whole redesign to make use of all that we've learned. Thank you very much. are getting some stuff done. They're getting some <laughs> things going. Okay. Great. Uh, my name is Sarah Cohn. Um, I'm here with uh, Cohn Consulting. Um, I have a really small consulting business in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm also the Visitor Studies Association um, Association Manager. Um, <clears throat> so Christy and Mary Jane just got to talk about some pretty sizable um, evaluations um, in-house in history museums, and I'm actually going to take a bit of a step back and say, that is awesome, but there are other ways to do it. Um, so um, two things that I really am going to be talking about are <laughs> the fact that uh, evaluation can happen at any point during a project. It doesn't need to necessarily start right from the beginning, although that would be ideal and we would love it to happen every time. That often is not the case, perhaps because it can't be done at the start of a project um, were forgotten about, which sometimes happens, and that's okay. Um, or perhaps their projects find additional funding to do evaluation later on. Um, <clears throat> so all of those things are, are great. If evaluation get, gets pulled in at any point, it should be informative to the process. The second piece is that evaluation can help answer um, many questions that you might have about a project. Um, so even if you don't have burning questions at the start, um, of a redesign or a new exhibition space. Um, if questions sort of come up, bubble up out of the team, or um, come about during the process, if you can't come up with the answers yourself with the team, or if you aren't comfortable with the answers you think you're finding, then evaluation can help you um, can help you come to come to some information or shed some light on those questions, um, and that can all be done on a small budget. Um, so I don't have slides. I'm going to talk about this. <laughs> so what I'm going to talk about, um, sort of framing those pieces, is um, based around a project that the History Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, pulled me in on. Um, the project was a 12 to 14 month project funded by the Minnesota State Arts Board to bring in <clears throat> broader Minnesota communities and field trips, um, school groups, to the History Theater to experience um, history in an art form and possibly also go to the Minnesota Historical Society's museum um, to see an exhibition that was also being um, conducted at the same time for some of the groups um, around the 1968 exhibit. <clears throat> I was pulled in in month eight or month nine of this 14-month project. Um, <clears throat> that was done when they kind of realized they weren't going to be able to in-house collect all of the answers and all of the information needed to report back to the State Arts Board at the end of the project. And they realized that they didn't have internal capacity to answer some of the questions they had about what, what are the impacts, what are the effects of this on these new school groups and on these new um, adult visitors um, and questions that they hadn't previously sort of tried to consider and tried to answer on their own, so they wanted additional feedback. So there were a few points in this, right, two-thirds of the way into the project, and they pulled me in. So 
there could have been additional work done at the beginning, but they did the community liaison and the relationship building in-house, um, and so I worked directly with that person to get some reflections on that instead of perhaps doing it systematically throughout the process. <clears throat> when they pulled me in, they had kind of a set list of questions that they wanted answered. They had they had the reporting requirements from the State Arts Board in hand, and we looked through those, and I said, great, yep, we can answer these four or five additional questions that you don't already have in your database um, or that you don't aren't, aren't already talking to uh, field trip chaperones about or adult ch um, community members about. Um, but through those conversations, we also found that they had additional questions that could help them improve uh, the, the program for this current year. Um, as well as starting to understand the partnerships that they had developed through this process. This is the first time that the History Theater had partnered with an organization significantly larger than themselves. And so they were wondering about how that went. Did it feel good on both sides? Who, what, where were barriers, where were obstacles that in the future they could try to avoid or try to sort of help mitigate earlier on? <clears throat> so through those initial conversations, we realized okay, I don't have to be here just to report back to the funding agency. I can be of more use. Um, and that, I think, was pretty exciting for them. Um, the budget didn't change. The process didn't really change. I wasn't, you know, we were able to sort of tweak things to say, okay, this is the amount of money you have. We'll figure out how to do that. Um, one of the ways that we did that was I partnered with staff from the History Theater to conduct the studies. So we created online surveys for adult chaperones and the people who scheduled the field trips and the adult um, community visits. And I created, through our conversations, we created some survey questions. I developed the online surveys, sent it back to them three or four times for feedback and to make sure that all of the questions were going to be useful and usable sort of immediately as they came in as well as for this school year and beyond. Um, Really? Okay. I created, <clears throat> and then I created language for the emails that the staff from History Theater would be sending out. But they did all of that process on their own. So they continued controlling the communication so that they could continue building those internal relationships with uh, greater Minnesota um, communities and schools. But we worked together to help keep the, the budget down and making sure that everything was going to be useful. <clears throat> So the data collection came in through them. Um, a bunch of the forms were actually paper forms, so the, my community liaison and the, the gal who sort of set up everything related to the program got a lot of the paper forms in and entered them herself. So she was sort of in time reflecting on what, what are schools, what are chaperones thinking about this project, and what do I need to do to help you know, the, the school groups next month have a better experience. <coughs> The results we came in sort of were two parts. So as we were going along, we realized that, okay, so we have the evaluation of the program itself from schools and communities. And then I have this partnership piece where I was interviewing people on both sides from the History Theater and the Minnesota History Center about this relationship and how the partnership sort of evolved and, and how it felt to different, different people across that area. And those were really different um, reports and really different products and the, who who those reports were going to be useful to, who that information was going to be useful to were, were different. So we ended up deciding to create sort of like the mass final report for 
helping them create the, the report back to the State Arts Board. But then I also created two separate reports, one for partnerships, which could, go, which, which could be spread throughout the history theater, and all of the directors and sort of all of the levels could reflect on it in ways that were um, informative for themselves. And then the programs report, which really went to the team who developed the programs for the field trip visit, what the day looks like, what the play looks like, um, and how the sort of follow-up activities look and play out for the groups and the logistics. <clears throat> so the impacts of this, um, I've connected back with them because I like to know that something about what I've done is useful. <laughs> so I connected back with staff at the History Theater, and they are, um, they've made changes this school year to the field trip group. They have continued the program as is, developing, finding other funding sources to continue keeping the the visit low cost and low budget. Busing in Minnesota, as we all, I'm sure, know, is very expensive. Um, okay, So keeping it cheap was really key. And keeping these relationships going with organizations, um, whether that's community centers or schools, that are, you know, two hours or beyond kind of a distance drive was really important to them. And they're also identifying different ways of getting theater out to these out to these communities. <clears throat> so coming back to sort of my two big pieces, um, I came in eight months. I did the study in three months at the very end, but it was informative both for reporting purposes of that project in particular, but then also for this, this school year, this summer, in thinking about how to build new programs and how to continue improving existing programs in ways that will be useful and keep drawing back community members and school groups. <clears throat> the other big piece is that they we were able to study one program that had sort of three different ways of experiencing. It was kind of a choose-your-own-adventure for school groups. Um, the relationships, new types of relationships and partnerships um, between the History Theater and other organizations for them to think about um, creating new partnerships and collaborations in the future. And then they had three reports at the very end, and all of that was done in five months for $2,600. So this does not have to be um, a really expensive or necessarily a burdensome type of adventure um, if you are just kicking out and starting off with trying to incorporate evaluation into the process. And, um, yeah, I'll just stop there, $2,600. <laughs> I like that number. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Good morning. Uh, my name is Karen Oberg. I'm with Oberg Research, LLC, out of New York, soon to be out of Atlanta. I'm moving next month because, frankly, the weather in Atlanta is just a lot better. <laughs> All of you from Minnesota, you're invited. Come on down. Um, so what I'll be talking about here is a slightly different perspective. I'm also an external evaluator, although I was an internal one back in the day. I opened Oberg Research uh, in 2005 and have been external since then. But, um, hold on, get my, oh, I see, okay. So what I'm going to talk about is one particular client, because the American Philosophical Society Museum and I have had actually a very long relationship, and it began in 2005 and has continued. But I'm also going to point out a few things, and those are things such as 
When you're doing an evaluation process, when you have a relationship with an external evaluator or even a long-term internal evaluator, it's good to start small. Continue to conduct evaluation processes over time. You can start with questions that are familiar. You don't have to start with big, uncomfortable research questions. You can start with really small, very familiar questions that you've always wanted to answer. And over time, you build on that data and start asking more questions, building more context about who your audience is and how they view their experience at your site. So a lot of the work I've done with the American Philosophical Society Museum has actually been audience building rather than program evaluation. If you want more information about that, we can chat afterwards. So the question is, is what is the APS Museum, for short? Uh, most assume it's this. And this is actually the first project that I did with the APS Museum, where they knew that their name was a bit difficult, challenging for visitors. So we actually rounded up museum people from the local, I'm sorry, from the local Philadelphia area. And let, let's just start with the museum professionals if they know. And this is basically what the museum professionals thought. But what is it really? The APS Museum is a museum which shows the new perspectives on history, art, and science. And it's actually much closer to this. The APS, the APS uh, began in the 18th century. For those of you who are historians of science, you know that phil philosophical in this context actually means natural world. And it's actually the American natural science society, sort of. But back in the day, it was called philosophy, and, that, and it's kept all the way along. The museum has kept the name as well. So since 2005, Oberg Research and the APS Museum have continued to work together. First, at the very top there, we have the Princess and the Patriot, an exhibition, as well as an exhibition talking about uh, what visitors know about the APS Museum, which is the building you see. Um, what you should know is while they do have that building, which is physically attached to Independence Hall, but not related to or in any way affiliated with National Park Service, which causes all sorts of confusion, um, that they, if that entire building, their exhibit space is actually 1,300 square foot gallery. I think it's that small. It's one gallery. That's it. It's about the size of this room. Um, so we started with Princess and the Patriot. We moved on to uh, Undaunted and Explorers, which is that next one, down to Darwin during the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth, and then to Elef of Elephants and Roses and its uh, projects that went with it called the Greenhouse Projects. And at this time, let me take a moment to thank the Heritage Philadelphia Program at the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, who are most of the time is actually the funder funding a lot of these projects that also allow for the evaluation processes to happen. So I'm very grateful to them. So what I'm going to talk about now, though, is that's just going to stay up uh, as a reference point, because I'll be bouncing all over time, is that we developed a survey for Undaunted, which is that second one down, whose questions in that survey we then used for Darwin. We used it again further in time for greenhouse projects. The interview questions from the Princess and the Patriot in 2005-2006 were actually adapted for Elephants and Roses in 2011. Through repetition and refinement of questions, we've been actually building an ever more sophisticated understanding of who that audience is that's coming 
the APS Museum. And rather than ask, what will our visitors learn? Uh, we can describe their experience and what is important to them. For example, we know that visitors who prefer to view the exhibitions that the APS Museum installs are much less likely to engage in the theater programming that goes with those exhibitions. We know that the hyperlocal audience, and hyperlocal is your audience that is within a mile of your museum, and for APS Museum, they're attached to Independence Hall, that's Center City, Philadelphia. There's both businesses and residential around that area. There's, there's actually people walking around that aren't tourists. Um, we, we send the tourists over to Mary Jane. That's, that's what we do over at the, end, uh, the National Constitution Center. We know that the um, hyper-local audiences will participate in pop-up exhibitions and programming. And what pop-up exhibitions is, is those exhibitions that seem to appear either as art installations or full exhibitions that appear in a storefront, in a garden, somewhere that's not in the actual part of the museum, and they're there for maybe six weeks and they disappear. And if you um, are familiar with AAM's recent document on future trends, one of the future trends that they're looking at is this idea of being more engaged in the community by having these pop-up exhibits. The APS Museum is already doing this, although I'm uh, not entirely sure they, they know, they're not doing it because of those future trends. They're just ahead of the trend. <laughs> um, we know that the hyperlocal audiences participate in those exhibitions and programming, and through those interview questions and observations, we know that they value that pop-up programming as part of the social and intellectual fabric of their neighborhood. We also know that these same audiences need to be invited to cross the street between the museum and the garden that's associated to the museum. What is a little bit difficult to see in, front, in the front door of the building there, there's a road that's Fifth Street. It's actually a two, one-way, two-lane road that at rush hour can be um, a bit difficult to go past. But across the street, they, the APS owns a garden, and the APS Museum has been putting in art installations all the way through ever since uh, uh, right after Princess and the Patriot. Problem is, is that visitors don't know, no matter how much signage you put up, they don't connect the building with the garden and the garden with the building. So they found that if they put out museum staff and invited people, we're so glad you enjoyed this art installation. There's a one-room exhibition related to this, and it's free. All you have to do is cross the street, and vice versa. We're so glad you enjoyed this exhibition. We actually have an art installation that's a modern look at what this history is. Please go across the street. And they have seen a significant increase in um, getting people to cross that street, which is a big issue for the board, or uh, not the board, the, uh, the friends of the APS, of getting people to cross the street. Um, this, among other findings, has given the APS Museum data to back their budget for both museum staff and for programming because they can say having an exhibit is not enough because we're going to lose half that audience. Having a theater program is not enough because we're going to lose the exhibit audience. And they have data that can, they can back that up with. And again, rather than ask what will visitors learn, we call upon people to explain to us what they hope their experience will be. The APS Museum does not ask, should we do this exhibit? They trust their professional expertise and experience. 
I, as their evaluator, trust their professional expertise and experience, and so do their visitors. What the, as, uh, what the museum strives to know is given this exhibition concept, given these objects, what is the most interesting, exciting, confusing issues around those objects? And we, in fact, conducted such a study with Elephants and Roses that helped to shape what the outcomes were going to be for a grant that eventually went to go fund the building and the programming for that exhibition. So these findings have helped inform the APS Museum exhibition's programming. And perhaps more importantly, it's helped secure internal and external funding and support. And a reminder, start small and continue to conduct evaluation processes over time. That first project was only $1,500. It was very quick. It was one focus group. Granted, we've also done a $16,000 project and everything in between. But that first one was a very small chunk of change. Start with questions that are familiar and over time build on that data asking new questions. Evaluation is a process. It is not a product. Thank you. So when I was appointed timekeeper, I decided to be a timekeeper, and I was maybe too good <laughs> at keeping time because we've, we have a lot of time left over. And I, I think that's good because I'm hoping that you'll have questions or at least we can talk about some of what we've heard because there's been a lot of different things that's been presented here. Um, you know, Christy's a, a, a one-woman show, as is um, Mary Jane most of the time, but they were able to get people together to help them use their budget as best they can and find out some really interesting things um, about their audiences um, from the inside. Um, Mary Jane was able to contract with an external evaluator to do a particular piece that was pretty specialized. Um, we heard from Sarah and how she was brought in, you know, here, we're almost done. Can you tell us some stuff? Um, and how, how could that really be helpful? And as an external evaluator myself, I know what it's like to just walk in and, and people say, we want to know this and this and this and this and like we need it tomorrow. Um, and so it, it can be really challenging, but it can also be really exciting. And it's a great collaborative um, opportunity for um, external people to work with the, the folks that are, who are actually doing this program. And then from what Karen was just talking about, that idea of sp starting small and building from there and how to use the findings and the, the questions, you know, adapting questions from one um, one project to the next is really awesome because that's kind of that idea I was I mentioned in the, the beginning, having a whole bunch of snapshots of evaluation, pulling them together and using them in really um, great ways. I mean, leveraging them for, I mean, isn't that what we kind of want right after knowing what our, our audiences are getting out or want from our from our program. So so I'm curious to know from from all of you, how many of you have, have done an evaluation of, you know, this big or that big? Okay, so there's about half of you who have who have done evaluations. How many of you are interested in doing evaluation yourself? <gasps> Yay. <laughs> so that's most of you. That's good. Um, and how many of you have worked with external evaluators? All right, so now I know who to tap for all, all these questions. Um, so for um, 
what were your thoughts about these different pro- uh, projects that you heard about? What, maybe one that was, seemed um, similar to something you have done or want to do. It's a shy audience. Well, I think the, the yes. observation of the last speaker about starting small and to think about it as a process, not as a final product. It should always be changing. It should be dynamic based on circumstance and context. Uh, that's something that uh, we certainly face at the Arizona State Museum. Well, uh, you know, limited budgets, not being able to have the big visitor evaluation, but to kind of do it uh, incremental steps. But the idea of trying to come to an integrated whole at the end. But, but all, all four speakers were phenomenal. I think lots of notes. Great. So that was that idea that it's a it's a process. It starts small and be able to do things internally um, across time. I mean that's that's really important to do. I know some clients that I have worked with. Um, they only get a little. They get a pot of money and like, can we do everything we've ever wanted to do with this? Well, you could think about doing that and kind of segment it that way. But what where's the best place to start that will be able to allow you to leverage these these um, the experience as well as the findings. Um, so that's an important, really important um, piece. Yes? One thing, this is sort of, the, I guess, the flip opposite of what we have done. Um, I'm at the Massachusetts Historical Society. One of the things that's really been um, dogging us is the, the whole evaluation, not of our, of our site, our on-site, but our website, and mm-hmm. not, the, not the quantitative part, but the qualitative part. Um, I mean, we obviously can, you know, figure out the numbers, but and, and particularly because our website is open and accessible, um, trying to find incentives for people to answer evaluation so we can get that quantitative, that qualitative um, part. Well, we have, you know, we, we are education and public programs in my department that I chair, um, and we have no problem, you know, with the people who are actually coming to our teacher workshops and doing that kind of evaluation, or people who use our website and come to the workshop, but it's the people who, who use the website and don't. And, Constantly, we have funders asking, you know, um, for, for more, um, uh, and we're, we're, we're not we're, we're falling short. On that. Right. So, any suggestions that yeah. you have? Yeah. So the so the um, comment was um, about how to evaluate um, quanti- qualitatively websites, and so Karen, you yeah. pop up here. Particularly how they're being used, you know, that kind right. Of thing. So. Uh. I'm, I'm so used to being able to wander as I talk. It's been very difficult to just stand here. Um, so I get asked that question a, a lot, actually. It's, it's a very uh, popular question from funders in particular. Um, and so what I usually respond back to to the client, and if we can, we call the funder and say, okay, but what is it you really actually want to know about the website use? And if it's, is it, and, and, and there's usually some kernel that it's not just general use, but it's are they under are they can they get the information that they need and what information is that? So let's look at can they get to directions? Can they get to um, um, collections? Um, I actually did a study where we realized that on the website it said collections, and the public had no idea what collections meant. So even though we said, go ahead, use the website and look for this artifact, and they had no idea where to start. Another way to do it, though, is actually to use a focus group type methodology where you bring a couple of people in, um, some who are web savvy, some who aren't, and you say, okay, I need you to find X, Y, and Z, and can you do it? 
and it's a utility study. We've actually faced a very similar challenge at the Constitution Center. We have a very popular distance learning program where we produce a very high-quality video about some aspect of the Constitution or some current issue, and it's beamed out, and we know that it's downloaded thousands of times, and we can get some great Google Analytics, but our funders want to know how are teachers using it, and um, why why are they choosing this, and what what is it about this piece that's compelling? Um, and you know, I, th- I think this is a case where the questions that funders are asking haven't quite caught up with our ability to answer the questions, um, which is a little frustrating. Um, but what um, what I did this spring that has had some uh, impact is that we actually put together an online survey, and we put a link to that SurveyMonkey survey right on the page where the video player could be, uh, where the video could be played, um, and we offered an incentive that um, for the first 500 teachers who answered it, we would give them uh, their very own copy of the pocket constitution. Um, the incentive worked to some degree. We got about 250 responses, so we didn't give away our whole box of 500. Um, about half of those teachers fully answered the, the survey. So we got a little bit of data, um, but it's, I think it's a question that we're really just kind of chipping away at. Sarah, did you have? Keep going. Okay, okay. Um, I just want to give you one potential resource, which is Museums on the Web. Um, I'm guessing they have um, folks who are part of that have probably done some kinds of online evaluation that have to do with qualitative, and that might be a, a place to look at. Yeah. Um, other, someone else had a question. Oh, yes. Thanks. Oh, and restate. Okay, so the question was: is uh, in in my presentation, um, I talked about that the changing from asking what did you learn to a visitor to what was your experience, and then um, and and that that is quite different from what funders are asking. Part of it is I would like to think we're a little bit ahead of funders in what is actually. Um, not only measurable, but what's actually important in a lifelong learning or free choice learning experience. 
when the, the philosophy that Oberg Research follows, and since I run Oberg Research, I get to bask in this philosophy as much as I can convince clients to come over to my side, is to say regurgitation or measuring somebody's ability to retain a fact is not actually a value to the visitor experience. They can go to Google. They can go to Wikipedia. There's other elements that form that experience of which gaining knowledge is a extremely high important piece because otherwise they would go to somewhere else. But when you ask them what their experience has been, a lot of those learning goals sort uh, answers actually come out in the data. What was important to you about this experience? What was important to you about this experience today between 8.30 and 9.45 sitting here in this room? Your answers might be everything from, I suppose it was worth getting up early to come to, <laughs> to I've taken copious notes, to, oh, I now have a, res a website resource. So if we translate that into the learning goals, it is... I've actually learned more about evaluation. I have learned how to uh, apply what I learned once I um, And as far as that first one goes, that's actually a, an attitude response, <laughs> not a content learning response. So we, what we can do is actually code them in a way that answers those funders' questions but are actually looking at what's important to the visitor. And while I, I don't have a history-related example for that, I've been working in children's museums recently where the uh, museum wants to get across, um, in particular, um, literacy messages. And they start always start with, um, you know, parents don't really know anything about early le literacy learning. And I, you know, take a deep breath and I say, how do you know that? <laughs> um, and they say, well, because we know and I'm like, but really, how do you know that? So those ideas about, you know, what people are really, what's really happening, it's okay that you don't know everything that's going on. You can't possibly. And sometimes when you look at your own experiences, when you go to do something, as Karen was pointing out, you know, what did you want to get out of this session when you first came in may be very different from what you walk away with at the end. So, Yes. Okay, so to just to restate sort of what the, the question comment was, um, history museums, history institutions a little bit perhaps behind in, in looking at evaluation in the same way that children's museums, um, science sites are. And so um, the question was directed towards Mary Jane and um, me. How did our positions come about at our institutions and, and how do you get support for something like that? Um, so me, I'm, I'm very fortunate, as I mentioned, our, my leadership has been very um, focused on getting evaluation and the visitor's perspective more into what we're doing at Monticello. Um, so Gary, who I report to, uh, 
told me recently that he had been sort of lobbying for a position like mine for about 10 years. Um, and I've been in it for two. And um, I think that part of the, the way we got my position created what it, was that I was already doing parts of my job that I do now. I was already um, overseeing our overall visitor satisfaction index, our general visitor survey, and I was um, sort of helming the visitor correspondence aspect already uh, while trying to do um, other work. So it was easy to sort of parse it out. And having um, a board that is very data-minded um, also helps. And um, being able to produce results, I think, has been really um, helpful for me. Um, our, our board enjoys seeing data. Um, our leadership does. So being able to not only be supported as I learn, but then also be able to provide information in a timely way um, and answer a lot of requests for information from our visitor correspondents, I think has um, reinforced that this is a good idea for our institution at the time. And I think history institutions, museums in general, are looking to how do we become sustainable, you know, for a, a longer period of time. Our visitors are changing. How do we how do we figure out um, what that is and how we make changes to meet our visitors' needs while also holding true to our missions and our values? And I think a position like this helps do that. So I'm fortunate that... Um, my leadership already had that vision, and I think that um, whether it's from an internal uh, evaluator or an external evaluator, people are going to be looking more to resources for evaluation, and funders are going to be asking for it. So that's going to drive the need as well. And I'm going to now defer to Mary Jane. <laughs> well, I have to confess that I think my job being created at the Constitution Center was a little bit of a happy accident for both them and me. Um, when I was looking for a job in 2009, I met some staff from the Constitution Center and mentioned that I had a lot of experience doing visitor evaluation in other contexts, and I taught an evaluation course. And they looked at each other and said, you know, that's been something we've been talking about for a long time, but we've never met the right person. So um, could we contract with you? I said, yeah, I think we could work that out. Um, so I did their first ever, or well, first in about five-year visitor study, um, first summer, and um, gradually uh, they hired me on full-time, and at first I had a variety of both education exhibits and evaluation um, responsibilities, um, but gradually as the leadership became more interested in uh, having data, uh, the, grants the grants manager realized that for the first time ever, she was not making up facts about our audience. Um, and we actually got that grant where we had not uh, gotten funding from that particular foundation before. Um, kind of a whole series of small things sort of added up and... Um, I'd like to think I sort of proved my value, and um, in February of 2011, and my job was actually formalized as solely evaluation, and I moved from um, being divided between exhibits and education into uh, working directly for the marketing department and also taking on a lot of marketing research in the, in the process. So I think that's the way a lot of things go. <laughs> This is Sarah. Um, so the person that I've been working with at the History Theater is much like the way Christy was talking about. She does all of the scheduling, all of the sort of ticket sales and stuff over the phone. But then part of her role, and I'm not sure if she took it on or if someone asked her to, but she creates the majority of their online surveys or their feedback forms or whatever. And so through the process of working with me and now 
you know, sort of calling me once in a while about other projects they're working on. She's actually building internal evaluation capacity within the history theater to take on more and more of this work. And so I'm sure at some point there's going to be a tipping point of, well, Jill actually can't do both all of the ticket sales and all of the reservations as well as all of the, the feedback. Um, so that, that kind of takes time. So one of the, I just want to follow up real quick on that. One of the other ways um, that you can start to build capacity in your organization, no matter what size it is, if you don't already do evaluation or you're looking to do it, um, is to look around you at the larger organizations that have someone on staff to do that. Um, and this case in point is that Sarah, um, when she's not working her other two jobs, is um, <laughs> works in the uh, research and evaluation department at the um, Science Museum of Minnesota. Um, and because they have um, a really solid, fine uh, research um, department there, there's a lot of expertise there. Um, and so if you can find organizations that already have someone doing um, evaluation, maybe not as large as something like the Science Museum of Minnesota, but someone who's already doing it and you can pair up um, and help each other out, that's a really great way to do it. So, yes, sir. Well, I just want to follow up. I, I agree with your comment. I've worked in science museums for a while. And... Uh, my opinion is uh, the granting organizations, particularly NSF, made it a requirement of not just what are your outcomes going to be in this, we're going to prove that, give us an evaluation plan. And while maybe our funders aren't asking us to do that, maybe we place that burden upon ourselves and say our total evaluation plan will look like this, and it involves going out and getting external evaluators, because it really refines your message and everything, and then that goes back to what we were saying earlier about that puts you on the path of putting this into your organization whether it's small, and you don't have to jump into a real large one, uh, start off small, and then I think they've just had the, the luxuries as their audiences began to change, they then rotated, they saw the need, they, they, they had seen the light, they, they saw it was good, <laughs> right. and so then they started bringing in uh, internal evaluators in their organizations to, to be more, more reactive to uh, particularly exhibit development pro program development. Right. You know, that's an interesting point, too, because um, as someone who gets asked at the, you know, 11th hour to please write an evaluation plan for our, our IMLS grant that we're going to put in tomorrow, um, <laughs> what I need to be able to do that is a lot of clarification about this, this program, this exhibit sounds great, but really, what do you want to have happen here? Um, and why, you know, why do you think that's a good thing to do? Um, and so I'm a, I'm a big proponent of doing things like a logic model early on before you're going to do this. And I know um, some people um, feel that doing logic models is akin to doing your taxes um, or standing up and speaking in front of people or whatever. But it's a really great way of just getting things organized and, you know, coming up with some language. Because when you're submitting a grant proposal, you know, you're, the reviewers are a whole, you know, range of people who may not understand all the kinds of things that you're talking about or may not like to read or read their, you know, you happen to be the ninth proposal that they're going to be reviewing that day. So to have a graphic picture with something like a logic model is really helpful to kind of get people like, oh, that's what you're going to be doing. Um, and I know IMLS does require um, to have, and more and more funders are. Um, and it's not always because they want to know what people are getting out of this. They want to make sure, you know, it's, it's more of an accountability. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can actually... Um, write these evaluation plans and proposals so that the funders get excited about like, wow, you're going to help people understand this so that it connects with 
what's going on in the world today or connects back with a certain area geographically or, or something along those lines. Karen? Just a, a quick follow-up to that for those of us who, uh, I think both internal and external evaluators, that when you do get those grants and you open them up and you realize, all right, I need, what's my team going to look like to build this grant? Please contact the evaluator at that point. Right. <laughs> please, please, please do that. Uh, because um, we don't care if it's in draft form. We want to be in as early as possible so that we have time to write those logic models. That's actually days and days of work, just like it's days and days of work for you to write the narrative. Um, so this is just a, a plea to the audience. <laughs> and I know Sarah had a comment about this too, but you know, getting an evaluator in early on is really helpful to the way that you're thinking about this project unfolding. Because remember, you already—you have this great idea in your head. It's all up there, and you can articulate it pretty well, maybe to the four people that you work with all the time. But those aren't the people who are going to be making the decisions or going to have the ex whatever experience it is that you're building. So it's sometimes to get an, uh, someone from outside, an external person, or even outside your department, if you have more than one department, to say, hey, what do you think of this? Um, I think it's always interesting when you, people come back and go, okay, I think I get it, but what about that? So it helps you write even a better proposal to be able to, like, flesh through all those ideas. Sarah, did you – did I do it for you? Yes. Another question? Okay, go ahead. Um, I have a slightly different question. Hopefully it's still on topic. We're going to have different kinds of audiences. I mean, if you're going to be, you know, some of these are destination kinds of places. So you're going to have people who are saying, I've got two hours to be here and two hours to be there and two hours to be there. And the institutions I've worked in, they're saying, you know, we have two hours to tell them all of American history. <laughs> you know, and we've got 100,000 square feet of exhibits. So what's that mean? So when you're going through here, you've got some that are going to be school tour groups. You're going to be kids. You've got people who are on their own schedule who parsed out amount of time because they're in a destination like Philadelphia or Washington or something like that. So they're going to be sort of hyper kind of aware of the timing uh, of their cartoon about coming in with expectations. One of them is how much time do I have? So my question is that when you're accounting for somebody who's local, uh, you're going to have a different set of expectations of time because they're going to say, let's go in this center city of Philadelphia and spend the day and go to this place and maybe we'll do something else. There's a different time model, so the 21 minutes may go out the window. How do you account for that for your evaluation process in any of these institutions so that you can say, gee, our, this is our expectation was they have two hours, therefore you have to come with facts versus like a day, it's more like well, um, you, you bring up a lot of interesting points, and I guess the big plug that I would like to make is um, you highlight some of the very issues about local visitors um, versus tourists versus families having different behaviors and different expectations for an experience. And one of the key things that every institution should really be thinking about doing, in my opinion, is looking at segmenting your audience. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. The Constitution Center does not function the same way for locals as it does for tourists, as it does for our school visitors. And um, as you collect data, you can begin to feed information into what those, creating what those segments are and also figuring out what you need to do to better serve those those groups. Um, 
in the case of my study, I was already very aware of the fact that we have these two very distinct audiences, local and uh, and regional visitors who are driving maybe you know an hour or two to get to us, um, and then the tourists who may be on their once-in-a-lifetime trip. We see a lot of folks in the summer, particularly I'm from uh, Minnesota or California or Alabama. I really want my kids to see American history, and we're going to spend four days on the on the east coast and we're going to see everything we need to see and boy you know we get that we get maybe an hour of their time for the constitution center um but we tried to account for that in in using mixed methods um while the timing and tracking was a a, a method where we did not interact with those folks we were trying to be unobtrusive in the other two um, studies that we did we did collect uh, demographics, including age, gender, and zip code, so that we could begin to segment the audience. And we knew that um, we also asked on the interviews, how much time did you plan to spend, um, and looked at what those differences were in their time plans between local and tourist audiences. Interestingly, because there's such a high concentration of attractions within 10 square blocks, we found that there was not nearly as much difference as we anticipated. Locals were actually apt to not spend very much time because they figured they could always come back, whereas tourists felt like they had so much that they needed to cram into their day. Um, so the, the time which we anticipated would be very different was actually, um, it, was, it was very, very similar. So I hope that helps. Um, and I think we're just at time, so um, we can all stick around if you have questions. Um, there's the technical leaflet up here that I encourage you to pick up. And please, since we're a session about evaluation, please, <laughs> please complete the evaluation on your seat. Thank you very much.